One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. And just finally, the question from me, Rebecca Powell. Is it time we all started sharing a bath? Not you and me, not you and me personally, you obviously, mean? that's it, that's inappropriate, even on a podcast. I'm Christopher Hope, The Telegraph's Associate Editor for Politics, and this is Chopper's Politics. And today on the podcast, we're getting our teeth into two very meaty subjects for you listeners. Media bias and yuck, sewage in our waters. Don't say we don't treat you. Later we'll speak to former Newsnight reporter Lewis Goodall about the BBC, impartiality, and whether, well, whether his critics are a bit too thin-skinned. But first, water quality has been making waves this week. See what I did there? With people posting videos of what seems to be sewage pouring in volume into our coastal waters and turning them into stinking cesspits. It's causing quite the concern on social media and in the comment sections of many newspapers, including The Telegraph. And it seems to have caused anger across the political divide. So I thought I'd give Rebecca Powell a ring, an old friend of this podcast and a former environment minister, to get to the bottom of it all. Rebecca Powell, welcome again to Chopper's Politics. Very delighted to be here as ever, Chris. You were the environment minister from September 2019 until July this year when you resigned along with um, dozens of other colleagues of yours which forced the resignation of Boris Johnson. But you were in charge of water policy. I'm going to ask you a direct question. Why are we pumping shit into the sea? I think the whole sewage issue is being completely blown out of all proportion. Some sewage is finding its way into water. And that is completely unacceptable. And I've said this from the word go. Uh, two water companies, I've had them in round the table. And let me just explain a bit about the background, about why that has happened. I'm not making any excuses for water companies, by the way. Historically, we have these things called storm sewage overflows. And these were put in in Victorian times for all the right reasons. So that if we had extreme weather events and a great deal of rain pouring down our pipes... Uh, sewage could back up into your loo basically so it was an emergency outflow that could be used to prevent that happening they've come to be relied on it it has come to light by the water companies far more frequently than they should have been and because we've upped all our data collection our monitoring uh, our investigations we are discovering actually that a lot of water companies are contravening their permits And they're using these things far too frequently. The good news is that we're on their case and that because of the action government's taken, we are we've got far more data you know, to prosecute. You have to have the 
actual evidence and the data. That's what we are doing, but also why we've sent direction to the regulator Ofwat that they have to put A, the environment at the top of the agenda, and B, they have to reduce harm from the storm sewage overflows. Do you think you've let them off for too long, you as a government, you as a Tory government, to let off water companies for too long? Uh, that's such a simple question for you to ask. And now privatisation, whatever people say about it, has actually done a great deal of good for water. And since privatisation, our water quality has improved immeasurably. And actually water out of the tap, but we've got the best, pretty much the best quality water in Europe coming out of our tap. The other bit we need to look at now is what goes down the drain. And, and companies have now got to produce sewage management plans, which they didn't before. That's something else in the Environment Act. Quite clearly, water companies, through the regulator and direction from government, in my view, do need more enforcement, do need a closer focus, and that's what we're working on. You said before that it's been blown out of all proportion, but you must see why people are upset. Cuts across generational divides, uh, political beliefs. It's, you, you see why people are upset about this? Well, I completely and utterly agree. I'm not disagreeing with them. And actually, I'm grateful for all the citizen science that people have uh, have sent in and collected. I think it's really helpful uh, because people are just everywhere and monitoring. And, and I want the water to be as clean as possible. That's why, actually, the more I learned about it in DEFRA, the more I prioritised it. And I've got a, I had a ginormous whiteboard in my office where I was pulling together all the different strands of water. And I'd started working on a holistic plan for water because also in my view a lot of the things relating to water were dealt with in silos you know supply demand housing and although water companies have to produce water plans and they work very closely with advice from the ea in my view it needs better linking up we need water companies to work together across boundaries much more and again that's something that we just it's not time to, 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 to renationalize is it, is it? No, I don't think that would help. That's, again, such a simplistic uh, answer, isn't it? Because actually, the water companies, whatever you say, have invested hugely. As I said, our water quality on the whole has really improved. They've got a great deal more to do. And we need to be able to attract investment into the companies. They do need to be successful. But equally, what we do need to make sure we do is, for example, they're not paying themselves enormous salaries, which don't reflect the fact that might be creating environmental damage. So those things need to be much more closely aligned. And in fairness, if uh, damage is caused, in my view, fines need to go up. Fines need to be higher. But the fines are tiny. They're they're tiny, the fines. They're millions of pounds for hundreds of leaks. It's hardly going to hurt them in the pocket. All of this needs looking at, but in the context of the fact that we need our water companies to be successful, but we also do need to be mindful of the cost to the consumer as well in terms of all this. That, that is a priority when we are thinking of getting in our infrastructure and so forth. Isn't it time that someone said sorry? The ministers... Well. <laughs> why don't you apologise? You, you were in charge for nearly th- three years. Um, well, I think that I'm... Since I was the minister and working uh, with my team, we've really, really up the ante on what we're doing on water and the government actually has brought through a revolutionary lot of legislation to improve our water quality and our cleanliness according to twitter tory mps voted to carry on dumping sewage in the sea is that wrong but as you will know with twitter and social media it's so easy isn't it to say those things 
Of course we did not vote to put sewage into the sea or water. I mean, who in their right mind would do that? We did not do that. That was completely misrepresented. What we did was actually bring through a raft of measures that will completely reduce sewage going into our water because it is unacceptable. Uh, So actually, by next year, all of these storm sewage overflows will be monitored. That's 100% of them monitored and targets have been proposed as to how to progressively eliminate these use of these storm sewage overflows because I must say Chris it's the problems relating to water are not just to do with sewage we've got a lot of other things on our plate to do with other things that go into water that we're all responsible for. Well come on to those I mean these labour figures from this week just this week showing that in 2016 uh, the Environment Agency which you were in charge of recorded 100,000 hours worth of spills in 2016 by last year that was 2.7 million hours of spills. Now, that is, that, is that, that is either better recording or a worse record. Yeah, well, I'm not saying any of that's good. And what is, is useful is that we know about it. But actually, a lot of that is connected to the fact that we are doing far, far more monitoring now than we were in 2016. So what it's highlighting is, yes, there is a problem. And now we've got the data. And in order for the Environment Agency to take people to court, they have to have the evidence. And they are working on it. They are taking people to court. And they've started a very, very intense investigation with Ofwat, which, uh, and they, I think pretty much all water companies are now uh, being asked to send in the paperwork and the data and an awful lot more enforcements will come through. Would, would you swim in the sea after a big storm? I do. Sw- I love swimming in the sea, actually. But, you know, uh, can I just say that I did bring forward uh, the measure whereby uh, uh, in bathing areas around the coast, Uh, water companies have to give daily updates as to the state of the water so we can all go online and look at that which I know lots and lots of people do and we've also brought forward a whole uh, raft of measures whereby uh, every uh, water company has to report now annually on the use of all these storm sewage overflows so we'll just have such a better picture of it they have to report to parliament on all that and as I said we've got this big plan on elimination of storm sewage overflows coming out in September. Just just final sewage do, do, do you think there's a political risk the Tories over this the way it's been re- reported talked about you're blamed repeatedly I mean it was Brexit to blame when I call it a national disgrace on my Twitter feed and someone then blamed Brexit do you, is, is Brexit to blame? I it's mean, do not, you worry it's about- not linked to Brexit in any way shape or form and it's so easy on social media uh, to to give these scary comments and none of the other previous governments have dealt with anything like this connected with water and when we had Labour in power they didn't deal with any of this did they and this has been growing for decades really and now is the time we are the government that are really putting these measures into place and they're much needed and i'm not saying there isn't even more to do there actually is on this holistic approach yeah more generally on water supply thames water started its first hosepipe ban in the capital in the south southeast just this week on wednesday on thursday when we're speaking the heavens open it is frustrating, isn't it, these, these hosepipe bans? I mean, why don't we have more reservoirs, as the Liberal Democrats ask? Again, that's such a simplistic question, isn't it? It is my job, though, to ask you a simple Every question. time you want to propose a reservoir, of course, there's a barrage of people who don't want it. I mean, the last, one of the very last 
debates I did in Westminster Hall was about the Abingdon Reservoir. And whilst there were an awful lot of people uh, in favour of it, and it's very much part of strategic thinking of water supplies, there are also a huge number of people, including, I do believe, our Liberal Democrat friends, who don't want it anywhere near them. So that's one small thing. We do need uh, potentially more reservoirs, but what we need to look at is the whole strategic water supply network and we do have a big project called it's called rapid uh, which is looking at these huge uh, west east transfers of water there's a huge pipeline uh, under this scheme that started and it's bringing water from the humber estuary right down the east coast to essex that's an anglia water project because they simply haven't got enough water over there in the east and it's thinking much wider about the whole approach but we also need to potentially individually use more water. How do you save water? Do you, do you do you have a do you measure your bath water at so six inches deep? Well, actually, I'm a. You have I'm water a bit butts of a for your lovely garden. I'm a bit of a stickler with my kids, you know, and banging on the door if I think they their shower's gone on for too long. But um, I have a water butt, and I've just actually got another water butt that I've just had delivered because there are actually some really simple things we can do to gather water in our gardens. And I'm very proud. I've posted it on Instagram. Actually, it was probably about. 15 years ago I created what what I call a dry garden and it's just got gravel around it and it's got a lot of Mediterranean plants and plants that I've never ever ever watered this border so we do also have to adapt the way we think. We asked on Twitter for some questions for you and Andrew said that you know going back to your point about companies you need to be more tough with them revoke licenses re-administer new caps on profits reinsert the money back into the failing system to stop leaks and update drainage and treatment plants and cap bonuses no second jobs for ceos or bosses well i I don't disagree i don't disagree with any of that chris i think i've mentioned a lot of those as we've gone along there are all things that we are tackling but need to be further tackling Uh, another point i would make is that which is something you know i'm on the back benches i can i can raise all these things if i get back as a minister i'll work on them too but fines say the 90 million that southern water got fined i mean we we should really be putting that back into cleaning up rivers at the moment it goes to the treasury i think we need to change that and have a river recovery have a river recovery um approach question we asked to be exact was how do we solve the water crisis duncan replied proper enforced regulation like you're saying fines on relevant businesses and a windfall tax on dividends what about, about windfall tax rebecca powell I, I, I'd rather tackle it through all the things I've, I've suggested here. Again, I think that's a bit simplistic. I think we've got to sort of unpack this whole area uh, and piece it together the way I'm suggesting, using the legislation, using the regulator um, to a greater extent. Uh, and, and, and that's the way I think we will approach it. Yeah. And just finally, the question for me, Rebecca Powell, is it time we all started sharing a bath? Not you and me, not you and me personally, you obviously, that's, that's inappropriate, even on a podcast. Well, well, interestingly, I stayed with my brother the other day and they have a water siphon attached to their bath. So the bath water just goes out to the garden. You know, I don't have that many baths, actually, but I think what a good idea that is. And, and what I do do in the kitchen, I have a washing up bowl, any water that I use that's, that's clean and I only use eco washing up liquid anyway I've taken out and I carry it out and I put it on my plant containers so a hose pipe from the, from yes, the bar yes you buy a siphon very cheap apparently to get the pressure going and you can just pipe it into your garden yeah just flow it out uh, why not there you go but also also we should all into our housing we should be grey water harvesting we should be 
recycling a lot of this water. Obviously, it's got to and be And flush the loo after each time. Someone, someone sent me a rhyme. I'm, I'm going to read it to you, but it's a bit inappropriate. Um, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. I mean, is that, is that what we... I have heard that. You've you heard that? I have heard that. Yeah, yeah. Well, honestly, loos in many cases use a lot of water and one of the other things that we are bringing forward and we need to speed up is efficiency of gadgets in our homes showers washing machines dishwashers and when i use my washing machine on a quick wash and i hardly use any washing powder either because i don't like what what goes down the drain call me sad but i've always i've always done this the other thing can we just mention this chris this is a bit of a shocking stat i think it's at least a third of bathrooms don't have a bin Okay, so that means people are using the loo as the dustbin. So all sorts of inappropriate things are being chucked down our loos. And that doesn't help the whole holistic system either. So wet wipes, for example, nappies. So all of those things need to be highlighted, addressed. So so government can help, you know, to a degree with eco labelling, efficient gadgets, you know, through housing can be have more efficient gadgets. But we also do need to take some responsibility. Would you agree, Chris? I would agree totally. Rebecca Powell, we've gone on for so long as ever. We talk forever, you and me. Thanks for joining us this week on Chobbers Politics and best of luck in clawing your way back into the next government. Good luck. Thank you so much. Always good to talk to you. Rebecca Powell there. Now, do stay with us, listeners. Next up, I'm talking to Lewis Goodall, the former BBC Newsnight reporter, about, well, left-wing bias at the BBC. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now this week, former Newsnight host and interviewer in that infamous Prince Andrew interview, Emily Maitlis, made some interesting comments about her old employer, the BBC, and it starts on impartiality. She left the corporation recently to start a new daily podcast with the media company Global. And joining on that show will be former BBC colleagues John Sopel and Lewis Goodall. Now, Lewis was frequently accused of bias himself when working as a Newsnight reporter by the Tory government and by Tory commentators. So I thought it was high time we asked him for his side of the story. So I asked him to the pub for a chat. Lewis Goodall, welcome to Chopper's Politics. It's great to be on. We've moved from our usual place in the Red Lion pub to a different pub, the two chairmen in Westminster. Very cosy here. 
But it's nice. exciting for you. You're just off the, off the train back from Edinburgh, where mm. you've been to the Edinburgh Television Festival, and and you're about to launch your new podcast for Global, which will come on to shortly. But it struck me that you have never really had a chance to answer your critics. Some of which have been in the Telegraph, others on... Um, no, uh, not in the Telegraph, not, surely. Well, not, really. not too many, surely. Not too many. About, about you and your reporting, and, the, and, and you became a kind of touchstone for some people about what was seen, perceived, perceived to be a, a left-wing bias of the BBC. I'm dying to know what you think. I mean, was that fair for a start? Is the BBC too left-wing? No. no is it left-wing think, then? I don't think it's left-wing or right-wing. I think that the BBC tries very, very hard to be impartial. I think the irony that always strikes me about this debate, which is that of all the media organisations in Britain, Mm. the media organisation which tries its hardest to be impartial is the BBC. Now, that is right, of course, because it's publicly funded. So it it must, you know, legally, morally, ethically, it must. Does it always get it right? Does everyone who worked in it get it right? Have I always got it right? I'm sure not, because we're human. That's just inevitable. But in my experience, it strains every sinew to try to be impartial. Now, you can have a question about what impartiality means. And... It means different things to different people. And sometimes I think some of the BBC's problems are around maybe not, not necessarily having made the deepest thought always about kind of what impartiality is going to be in any given circumstance because it's going to be different in different circumstances. But in general, look, although it has its problems, it really tries very, very hard to be impartial usually is and as i say that's more than can be said for every media organisation yeah. in Britain. You were often accused of being left-wing in your reporting, were you? No. I think, look, I think because there's lots of things you can point to around why I became a bit of a have become a bit of a sort of uh, lightning rod for these things I think that one of them is that look I I think and I'm sure you do and and you know many of your you know best reporters a very fine paper with a very fine history like the Telegraph think that fundamentally the relationship between a government and journalism should be a bit antagonistic we happen to have a conservative government and it's been a conservative government in all the time that that I've been a journalist correct and I would just say, and by definition then, and I'm also someone who, you know, do I like to create a bit of mischief? Do I like to find particular stories that I think are going to run and run and run? Yes. I mean, whether it's about, you know, care homes or whether it's about the exams fiasco or whether it's about refugees or whatever it is, building safety. The reason I'm in journalism is because I believe in telling truth to power, saying truth to power, and holding power to account. And I am passionate about that. And do I do that in an assertive way? Well, yes, I do. But I think that's the point. That's the point. And I, I would say this in terms of any of my critics. I would just say, come back to me in five years or ten years, if there were a Labour government, and if you can point to me being qualitatively different, then you'll have had a point. But I can guarantee you right now, I would be exactly... So it's because a the government, Tories are in government, yeah, that's why you gave them a Impartiality kick. isn't that difficult. Sometimes I think people make it more complicated than it is. For me, I find impartiality a very exciting concept. Because what it basically means is that you can do journalism without fear or favour. It means that you can be in a position where you are holding power to account. And it means you can do so without any sort of agenda. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to go after these people or that you're trying to destroy them or anything like that. What it means is, is that you are doing your job on behalf of the license fee payer or your reader or your viewer Mm. on holding power to account. And ultimately, the thing that I'm interested in most of all is the truth. What is the truth? Mm. And, you know, sometimes the truth is fuzzy and fuzzy edged and shades of grey. And that's fine. We can say that. I did hundreds and hundreds of times on Newsnight or when I was at Sky. So this is complicated. It's a bit difficult. 
But sometimes the truth is sharp-edged. It's not on the one hand, it's on the one hand. Do you feel picked on? I mean, you paint yourself, you know, as as a truth finder, but there are lots of truth finders at the BBC, but they seem to pick on you, that the critics... Well, I think that there are two things that I think have happened. First, one is a sort of slightly more prosaic thing, which is, I think it really started, I think, in about sort of 2018, when I wrote a piece about Boris Johnson uh, for the Sky website. It was after, do you remember, he he wrote a piece, he just stopped being Foreign Secretary shortly before, and he said that... Uh, Muslim women look like letter boxes. Now, that wasn't the whole point of the piece, but that was one of the lines in a classic sort of Boris Johnson, Describe them uh, Johnson wearing, way. Uh, yeah, exactly. The hijab, like yeah, exactly. Yeah, now I say that wasn't the point of the piece, but that was a line I said. And I wrote a piece off the back of that saying something which I firmly, firmly believe, and I think it's one of those times, one of those moments where, you know, frankly, it's just self evidently true. The, I think the title of the piece was You Can Say Whatever You Want in Britain as Long as You're Posh. Because the fact of the matter is, I think that, you know, if I had interviewed, say, if I'd been in Birmingham, where I'm from, and I'd interviewed a Voxer man and he'd said, uh, you know, I think the thing about Muslim women is they look like letterboxes. I think everyone would know what they would think about that. But because Boris Johnson is of a certain class and is of a certain kind, he's able to say things that, frankly, more working class people can't get away with. And I think, you know, anyway, this was There's a also context, wasn't it? I mean, of course there is. Look, but I'm just saying, I'm not, I don't yeah, want to really yeah, negate all no, that. I don't, but I'm just, I'm just saying I think this is where it came from, right? Yes, Which yeah. is, is that, and after that, you know, I think at that point, Guido and a few people then discovered this old, this old website where I was uh, describing myself as a labour activist when I was 19 years old. Right. And then from there on, it became a bit of an internet meme, right? It was like, Lewis Goodall, labour activist, labour activist. I mean, I even had, I mean, the absurdity... You know, I even had people today sort of saying, um, you know, basically comparing me to Robbie Gibb, saying, well, Robbie Gibb uh, was a political person. I was a political person. I'm sorry. Like, you know, (laughs) Robbie Gibb was the director of communications for the Conservative Party. My the height of my achievement within the Labour Party was youth officer for Birmingham Northfield CLP. (laughs) The other reason why I think I've occasionally attracted a bit more ire is because I think that there has been a, a tendency within journalism in recent years to and not just within journalism, but political actors have started more and more, not just to attack journalists, and Chris, I'm sure you know that, like, you know, people, they've attacked <laughs> journalists forever in a day. That's always been the case. Tiny violin, just, Lewis. It wasn't, no, no, but it wasn't, no, 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 absolutely. I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that um, that's always happened. But there has been a slightly different change around attacking journalists for being different, different from the public, particularly from certain elements, ironically enough, of the print press to broadcast press, or broadcast media, oh, you know, you're a bit sort of bourgeois, you're a bit sort of liberal, you don't represent these people. Look, I think, to be honest, that's never really intimidated me very much. Mm-hmm. Why? Because my dad's a welder. Mm-hmm. A lot of those people who say those things to me, I don't think their dads are welders. So, you know, I don't feel ever particularly intimidated by people trying to tell me that I am, you know, not representative of the public and therefore I have less legitimacy and I should sort of change my behaviour accordingly because that's just not true. I'm looking here on... A uh, tweet that Robbie Gibb, who now a board member of the BBC, said, talked about an article you wrote for the, the New Statesman in which you talked about the exam, the exam fiasco. And, and he said, is there anyone more damaging to the BBC's reputation for impartiality than Lewis Goodall? This is so off the scale, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, that's, that's, I guess by then he wasn't on the board of the BBC, was he, Robbie Gibb? No, he wasn't at that time. But how do you answer that? So, I mean, I could just say with regards to that, for example... That piece, which went into the New Statesman, I'd done a lot of reporting on the exams fiasco in that summer. You know, many people said it was great reporting, that it helped sort of change the kind of government policy at the time. And that particular piece went through the full BBC process. It was signed off by the BBC and so on. So if 
Sir Robbie, um, had <laughs> to you. you know, a, of <laughs> course, to me as a humble commoner, um, had you know a particular problem. Then it I say it wasn't just about me; it was signed off by the BBC. Mm. I'd also say, I mean, look, uh, I don't particularly want to get into stuff about Sir Robbie. Or as I say, I actually gave him my first job at the BBC. But you know, I did sometimes feel, and I did feel, I do think this is a sort of absurdity within the discourse that it sometimes did feel a little bit Kafkaesque or a little bit rich to be taking lectures about impartiality from people who had been very politically aligned. In that case, Sir Robbie had just been the director of communications for the Conservative Party. He had worked at the BBC. I make no criticism of him or his record at the BBC. But, you know, I think sometimes a little bit of self-awareness in these matters wouldn't go amiss. And James Purnell, of course, at the BBC, former Labour of Culture course, Minister, of Secretary of Culture Minister. Of course, but... James Fennell hadn't criticised that as far as I know. Well, he, had, he, he kept James, his to himself, as far as I know, he kept yes, his to himself. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes I also think we focus only on kind of accusations of bias from one direction, which is from either the government or Conservative Party. Now, you know, I remember in 2019 when I was still at Sky, I remember that there were, when the Brexit Party was getting going, and yes. a lot of people in journalism were dismissing it and just basically being like, what's this, just old Nigel Farage all over. Now, there were two journalists, as I recall, <laughs> me from television and you from print, who were there in those very early days in fire. We were the only ones there. We were the only ones there. In the Welsh Valleys. Yeah, and because, yeah. And, that's because and that deeply impressed me about you at the time, without being too much of a loving in the, <laughs> in the pub. But you were, you were there, because something was happening in the country, wasn't it? Yeah, and you, you could, I could just sort of feel it, and I could just sort of intuit that, like, Farage was going to be able, was going to change it all, which yeah. he did. And I can tell you this, in terms of, again, now, you know, Nigel Farage and the party... You know, to the right of, of quite a bit of the Conservative Party anyway. I never had any complaints whatsoever from Nigel Farage or any of his team. He we were very, had very robust exchanges. And there's one other thing I have to say about Farage, which, you know, which, whatever you say about him, and he's a you know, love or low figure for a lot of people, he's robust. Mm. And he's not, he, I've never really known him to complain much about kind of, you know, you say this to him and he'll come back at you. Never. And you've got to, resp- and you've got to respect that. He's not thin-skinned, that. that's how no, he survived. No, he's not thin-skinned and that's how he survived. And, you know... I think that as a result, I think at the time people sort of quite enjoyed it because, you know, I was sort of with him and you wouldn't necessarily expect it. And we yeah. were sort of, you know, had an interesting kind of dynamic. But I just bring it up just to say, yes. as I say, that like, you and you know, me. it's a very complicated, yeah, indeed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, halcyon days. But it's, a, you know, it's a far more complicated picture in terms of this sort of thing about bias than is often given credit for. It is the right thin skinned? I think. They don't like it up them in old, in old language. I think there has been a tendency in recent years where I have been a little bit surprised sometimes when politicians, including you know, cabinet ministers, have seemed rather complaining about some of the scrutiny that comes their way. And to my response to that is simply, well, you don't need to be a cabinet minister. You don't need to be the government. And it is just much easier often. And I think this is a bit dispiriting, to be honest. It is just much easier for politicians to, when they're confronted with a set of facts they don't like, and facts are what ma- is matters here, the truth matters, when they see facts they don't like, instead of responding to that and coming up with some substance to say, well, that might be so, but this is what I think about it, or whatever, they attack the person giving them the facts. And that's, that's easy. It's Trumpian, it's, it's Trumpian. It is Trumpian, it's cheap. It's just cheap. Mm. And, you know, I think that, frankly, I don't know what the answer to that is, except that I think politicians, we just maybe need some better politicians, or politicians who are, and there are lots of politicians like this, by the way, who don't want to play the man or woman, they want to play the ball. Did you want to leave the BBC? Were you forced out? I was not forced out. I was not forced out, no. You, it was, it was an offer you couldn't refuse from a, Global? Well, it was an offer. It was a great offer from Global. I'm really excited. I think the job's going to be really, you know, really fantastic. And uh, as I say, I'm very fond of, you know, look, Chris, I was, I actually credit in a lot of ways 
the BBC with me being interested in politics in the first place. You know, I'm a working class boy from Birmingham, right? We were not talking loads about politics in my house when I was a kid, right? And how did one of the reasons I got into politics is I started watching programs like Newsnight, like on a sad little teenager in my room in Birmingham. I'm watching it and loving it. Not all right. the viewers are sad of Newsnight, are they? Huh? Not all the viewers no, are sad. No, it was just me. I was just me being sad. The 13-year-old boy. I was 13 because yeah. I, was, I was watching Newsnight. And, and, you know, it nourished me. It nourished. I used to listen to the day programme in the morning on the way to school. It nourished me. It nourished my interest in politics. That's why, one of the reasons I became a journalist and became fascinated by politics. Mm. So, you know, I have nothing but admiration as an institution uh, for the principles of the BBC and what it involves. Do I think, as I say, do I think it has problems that it needs to work through? Do I think that sometimes it has been a bit intimidated sometimes? And does it think politically sometimes? Well, yeah, it does, like all organisations. But it wasn't a case of me being forced out. No, I had a great offer from Global. Who knows what the future holds? I would never say going back. Uh, go no, back? Go, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It has been rumoured that one of your colleagues, Emily Maitlis, and she's launching this podcast with you on Global next week with uh, John Sopel. It has been rumoured that one of the reasons she was at the BBC was because she was being told off over her tweeting. Was that the same for you? That didn't, didn't have any bearing on you, your social media activity um, or, or other work? Well, look, I think it's fair to say that there were times when it was expressed to me that certain people at the BBC would rather I sort of tweeted less or, yeah. you know, was less active on social media. Were you called in in front of, front of the, the beak? Uh, no, I, was, I, had, I had conversations with a few different sort of senior people at different times. It was, of course, you know, these things are never, we want to talk about this. It's just sort of, oh, well, you know, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> just, just while you're here. Um, but, what did you say back? What I say back is, I mean, look, I always said back, well, first of all, I always thought, look, at the end of the day, they're my employer. So I have to listen. I can't just, you know, go mm. freestyle because also when you're at the BBC, and it is, a, it is a bit of a weight, you are very conscious that you really are representing this institution. You're conscious that the institution has a lot of enemies who will use you. They don't really care about you. They're just using you to get to the institution. And were you, were you, used, were you being used as that Yeah, sometimes. That yeah, sometimes. The enemies try and get the BBC and, and, and rein it back yeah, in I mean, they don't think they really care about me as such, right? It's just that they just find certain people they just want to use as a lightning rod. And I'm sorry that whoever's going to have to pick up the baton, <laughs> but I'm sure there'll be someone. So they don't, and so, and you know, I would just say to them, look, I hear you and I'm always very careful and I am careful about and what I say and what I tweet. And of course, I'm always very, very mindful around impartiality. And can I just add on that? There was never once, I mean, this is a sort of various thing that when I left, there was, or announced I was leaving, there were various uh, sort of, you know, bits saying, oh, uh, you know, Lewis called leaving under impartiality cloud or something. There was never once in my entire time there ever a substantial complaint upheld about me. And there weren't many complaints because I was always careful about what I said. You mentioned your, your, your old mate, uh, Robbie Gibb, he hired you, then he fell out with you about something of journalism. Well, I've never fallen out with him. But, um, Emily you know. Maitlis said in, in, in a lecture this week in Edinburgh, where you've just been, that the BBC has an active agent of the Conservative Party on, on its board. Is that right? Should Robbie Gibb resign from the board? Well, it's not for me to say whether he should resign. Or not. I think what it is to say is that, look, there should be, rightly, legitimate questions about political appointments to the BBC. I don't think there had ever been... I mean, look, Chris, I'm sure that your readers might be a little bit perturbed if, say, I don't know, Alastair Campbell were appointed to the BBC board. <laughs> you know, that would definitely get some... That would definitely irritate some Telegraph readers, I'm sure. And irritate a fair few people, you know, or whoever. It's the same thing, isn't it? Because he was, of course, head of comms at number 10. Yeah. Robbie Gibb had the same role. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not it's, you know, unfair it be, to say that. No. I personally, I don't think that the government should appoint people to the BBC. I just don't think that should happen. And that would go for Labour governments and Conservative governments. And I would feel exactly the same way if it were a Labour government appointing an equivalent to mm. Robbie Gibb. I don't. Not least because I actually think it's very difficult for them. How can, how can they really do that job without at least the accusations yeah. of, of, of uh, wrongdoing?
How is Global different? You've been doing some practicing there. You've been there for sort of three days. So uh, <laughs> it's look, it's very different. It's a very different and sort of company. It's much newer. Agents, so the podcast is called News Agents. Yeah, daily podcast. Daily podcast going out at five. Dergan going out at uh, five roughly every day. Although there may be emergency ones. Who knows? Yes. Um, on the global player. On the global player and uh, you know, Spotify elsewhere. Yes, all, all elsewhere as well. And the plan is Emily Maitlis, John Sopel, yourself mm. presenting. The, this podcast over mm-hmm. five days a week, mm-hmm. different days. Different days, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the sort of idea is really, without giving too much away, I mean, the, um, the idea is really, I think, probably on each day to take a particular question or a particular story and try and get really under the skin of it. Mm. And it would be really exciting for me in a way. The thing that really made me want to do it is because, you know, the chance to create something new. The thing is, in broadcasting, a bit like there are a lot of the rest of the media, often these are these quite, you know, old, established you know, great companies, mm. but you know what it's like. It can be quite difficult to start new things because they're quite set in their ways, right? Just inevitably. But this is quite a distant well, new Telegraph thing. started this podcast in Well, there you go. That's true. That's true. Telegraph accepted, obviously. Well, Lewis Goodall, best of luck with the News Agents podcast. And thanks for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. My pleasure. Do tell me what you think of what Lewis had to say there. And of course, Rebecca Powell. How concerned are you about our waters? Do email me chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or on Twitter, message us, we're at Choppers Podcast. And while you're there, please do sign up to my daily Choppers Politics newsletter, bringing you the best Westminster insights straight into your email inbox every weekday. The link to sign up will be in the show notes to this episode. And do be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out at 7pm on Fridays on our website and in Saturday's Daily Telegraph. Thank you again to my guests this week, Lewis Goodall and Rebecca Powell, MP. Thank you as ever to the brilliant team of producers behind this podcast, Giles Gear and Louisa Wells. And this week, thanks to Keith Hussein, who's helped so much with making it all happen. And most of all, well, thank you to you for listening. Remember, if you can, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio!